There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 79, The Year in Review for Missing in the Carolinas. Hello, and I hope you're all surviving this holiday season. I know this time of year can be difficult with the various stages of life we're all going through, and let's say possibly interesting family dynamics. Personally, I can't complain over here, and it's been nice having our college student home from Alabama and the chance to spend time with both of our kids. For this week, I wanted to do an end-of-year wrap-up for the podcast. I thought I had done one last year, but when I went back to look through my files, it looks like I didn't. The final episode for 2022 was episode 51, The Darker Side of the Holidays, on December 23rd. This was before I switched over to a weekly podcast schedule, so I guess that makes sense. I did do an episode on December 31st, 2021, where I shared the stats from the podcast after its first year. Episode 61, which aired in mid-June of this year, featured a behind-the-scenes look at Missing in the Carolinas, and I'll share a clip from that later on in the episode. I wanted to feature an end-of-year analysis this year because our production schedule has changed and we've seen a tremendous amount of growth since December 2021. In this episode, I'll discuss a bit behind the methodology that goes into creating the episodes, where I get my ideas, and some good old-fashioned statistics. I made the decision this past fall to go from a bi-weekly production schedule to a weekly schedule. I did this for a few different reasons, even though it created more work for me, but I wanted to be able to create an environment more attractive for interested sponsors. This year found me weaving more true crime stories from the Carolinas into the episodes, and those have proven to be popular. I'm also focusing more on interviews, whether it's from families of missing people or true crime authors. I like having the flexibility of the interview format and hope to do more of that in the future. All in all, we released 28 new episodes this year, including this one. Now let's talk about how I got some of my ideas for this year's shows. I've spent a lot of time reading true crime books from our area, as well as viewing a variety of true crime documentaries. One that really caught my attention was the Netflix documentary, The Confession Killer, which focused on the false confessions of self-proclaimed serial killer Henry Lee Lucas. Here's a clip from episode 61, a behind-the-scenes look at Missing in the Carolinas, where I talked about how I first heard this story. For me personally, the documentary, The Confession Killer, which focused on the numerous false confessions of Henry Lee Lucas, fascinated me because it shows a systemic-wide issue of closing murder cases simply because one man confessed to them. Watching all the archival footage, it became apparent to me that the special accommodations, meals, and elevation to an almost voyeuristic celebrity status in the state of Texas was the spark that inspired Lucas to confess to hundreds of murders he didn't commit. I remember when I first discovered an article titled Odyssey of Murder that ran in an August 19, 1984 edition of the Charlotte Observer. I was intrigued. The article claimed Lucas was confessing to involvement with at least 10 crimes in North Carolina, including several murders. 
that were eventually linked to other perpetrators through DNA evidence. And this was before the documentary The Confession Killer was released. I was motivated to watch it to explore the personality of a person who was clearly a pathological liar. And as a journalist, I respected the ones who quickly caught onto the hoax and fought to have it exposed. This past summer, I found a podcast called Morally Indefensible, and it explained the relationship between convicted murderer Jeffrey McDonald and true crime writer Joe McGinnis. I found it fascinating, and that made me think about the made-for-TV movie about the case that aired in the 1980s. I began researching other North Carolina crimes that resulted in TV movies of the week, and it became episode 65. In that episode, I discussed Jeffrey McDonald, Timothy Hennis, Susie Lynch, and Fritz Klinner, and the murder of Leith Fonstein. In late August of this year, news broke that a professor had been shot by a grad student at the University of North Carolina campus. This brought back the memory of the 1995 shooting that also took place on the campus when a student named Wendell Williamson opened fire, killing innocent bystanders in the process. That event took place in 1995, when I had friends attending the university, so I began researching the details to jog my memory. The result was episode 63, the 1995 shooting on the UNC campus. I wanted to do something different for an episode in October, as it was National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I was a little hesitant to do that, since the majority of the episode wouldn't be about the Carolinas specifically. But while I was reaching out to expert sources in the subject matter, I became the victim of what is called the Zell Me to Me scam. I decided to share the story in episode 69, how to avoid being the victim of a cybercrime. I thought maybe my story of losing more than $3,000 that my bank wouldn't refund could potentially help someone else. Here's a brief clip of my story as a refresher. First today, I want to talk about Zell scams as I was the victim of one recently. The payment app Zelle is popular with people because it connects your bank accounts or debit cards directly to the payment service. Unfortunately, that also means it's almost impossible to cancel a digital payment once you've sent it. The Zelle competitor Venmo asks that you confirm a contact's last four digits of their phone number before you send funds as an added layer of security. Zelle does not have this. Because my bank uses the Zelle app directly in my banking app, I thought it would be secure. Here's what happened to me. Someone gained access to both my debit card and a credit card. They ran a small charge on my debit card that they knew would look suspicious and flag my bank. I received a text from my bank asking if I had made the charge. This was a legitimate text. I get them frequently from my bank. Before I could finish reading the text, I received a call from my bank, or what I thought was my bank, because the scammers spoofed the number of my bank's fraud department. A man identified himself as being from my bank and said they had noticed someone had scheduled a payment from Zelle and wanted to confirm it with me. He named a dollar amount. I said, most definitely no. He also said the payment was going to another state and they noticed most of my purchases originate from, and then he named the town I live in. He said, no problem. I'm going to walk you through how we can reverse the charge. If I had not already been nervous about suspicious activity on my debit card, I would have realized you can't schedule a Zelle payment. It goes through immediately after you pay it. There is no scheduling option that I'm aware of. 
The man then had me open my banking app while I was on the phone with him, go to Zelle, create a new contact named after me, and type in a confirmation number that would serve as my claim number. Well, as you can guess, that claim number was a phone number. The man was a smooth talker. He talked fast, and I had a hard time keeping up with what he was asking me to do. While I was on the phone with him, I supposedly reversed two different charges they could see on their end. He then asked me to close out my app and not open it again for 24 hours. They would send me an email on how to reset my username and password. This is when the hair stood up on the back of my neck and I realized I'd been scammed. I also got a text from Zell right after I hung up with this person telling me, congratulations, you've sent X amount of dollars to Renee. The money was immediately siphoned from my bank account. I called the bank with a number through my banking app, but it was too late. The money was gone and all the bank could do was make a claim. After the episode aired, listeners genuinely seemed appreciative of the information I was sharing. But in case you heard the episode and are wondering what the outcome was, I have a nice footnote to the story. After being turned down twice by my bank for the claim, I filed a police report and one with the FBI Cybercrimes Unit. Then I went to my identity theft insurance because I could prove I had a debit card and credit card stolen at the same time someone called me pretending to be from my bank. The identity theft insurance also turned me down. I then emailed our local consumer affairs reporter in Charlotte, Jason Stujanke, with WSOC-TV, and he asked if he could interview me. He'd covered stories about the exact same scam before. He reached out to my bank to ask if they could refund my money because Zelle had announced this past fall that they would refund people who were victims of imposter scams. That's what I was involved in. Less than a week later, the money I lost through the Zelle me to me scam was deposited back into my account and the bank sent me a letter stating they had reevaluated my claim. As a bonus, Jason mentioned missing in the Carolinas in his news segment. I'll put a link to the article in the show notes if you'd like to check that out. Before we continue, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. It's winter time. I don't know about you, but my skin is always in desperate need of moisture during this time of year, and, well, all the other months of the year, too. But I don't like to experiment with a lot of different products at high price points if they won't work for me. Enter the products from Skin X Erin. I use her pre-cleanse oil, hydrating beauty oil, and perfecting night oil, and I was hooked from the first drop. The pre-cleanse gently removes dirt, impurities, and even waterproof makeup without tugging, all without stripping or drying out my skin. In addition to keeping your skin clear, it also helps your skin feel firmer and reduces the signs of aging. The Hydrating Beauty Oil is a powerful and effective skin hydrator that never leaves your skin feeling greasy. The Signature Squalene Oil is known for its anti-inflammatory and anti-aging properties. It's perfect for treating skin conditions like acne and eczema and reducing the appearance of wrinkles. The Perfecting Night Oil is loaded with vitamins E and A and is rich with antioxidants and omegas that nourish skin, replenish elasticity, and reduce stretch marks. A few drops a day leave skin feeling smooth, more vibrant, and youthful. Want to try out the products for yourself? Go to shopxerin.com and use the code MISSINGCAROLINAS10 for a 10% discount on your order. 
True crime is more popular than ever, thanks to documentaries, podcasts, and media outlets that produce gripping crime stories. This is great news for writers wanting to explore this market. Crime narratives are not only compelling for consumers, they can also help find justice for victims, their families, and the community. In fiction, using true crime elements and journalistic techniques can help deepen the storyline and add authenticity to characters and plot. Do you enjoy reading and consuming true crime content and would love to find a way to write and publish your own? In a webinar I'll be teaching through WOW Women on Writing next spring, I'll share how to find story ideas, how you can use true crime elements in nonfiction and fiction, where to pitch your true crime work, and more. You also have an opportunity to send an article outline or project pitch to me for feedback. The webinar will take place on March 14, 2024, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and will be recorded for those who can't attend in person. The cost is only $45, and there are a limited number of spots, so register today at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the Classes tab. And now, let's get back to the show. Let's talk about the top five downloaded podcasts of this past year. They've all received between 2,500 to 2,700 downloads since the middle of this year, with no special advertising of the podcast. The fifth downloaded podcast episode of the year is episode 54, The Murders of Pamela Murray and Beverly Sherman. These are two cold cases from Asheville that have yet to be solved. Here's a clip from the episode. For the purposes of putting together an accurate timeline, this story really begins on January 20th, 1987. That's when a teenage girl named Beverly Sherman was seen getting into a light yellow Camaro behind the Asheville Civic Center. Police later suspected that the car belonged to a John, as Beverly had been previously charged with prostitution. After that, she disappeared. A month later, on February 14, 1987, Pamela Murray drove to the Asheville Mall a few hours before she was supposed to meet her fiancé for dinner. She never made it inside. A witness later told police a man had approached Pamela outside the mall around 1 p.m. near the Sears entrance and grabbed her by the arm. The two then left in Pamela's 1986 gray Oldsmobile with the man driving. Just a short time later, Another witness saw the car near Azalea Road and realized the man and woman inside were struggling. Shortly after that, a motorist called police to report what they believed to be the body of a woman lying motionless on a deserted part of Azalea Road. She was visible to motorists passing by. It was only about 20 minutes from when she was abducted from the mall. Police theorized she had jumped out of the car and then her captor shot her. There were no signs of sexual assault. Her car was found back at the Asheville Mall in a different area from where she'd been abducted around 1 a.m. the next morning. The fact that a woman would be abducted from the mall parking lot in an area of town where people had always felt safe stunned residents. Pamela Murray was a lifelong resident of Buncombe County who had graduated from Inca High School in 1981 and then attended Blue Ridge Technical College. At the time of her death, she was working as an industrial engineer with Asheville Industries. After her murder, several of Pamela's friends established a fund in the hopes they could offer reward money to anyone who had information about Pamela's case. Various community members and business owners donated to the fund, and it eventually grew to more than $13,000, but produced no solid leads. 
Detectives eventually questioned more than 50 people, including Pamela's family and friends. The FBI conducted ballistic tests on the bullets recovered from her body. In an article that ran in the Asheville Citizen Times on February 27, 1987, I noticed a news brief on the same page that read, Parking Lot Flasher. It said, An Asheville woman has reported that a man exposed himself to her in the Asheville Mall parking lot. The 23-year-old woman said a man in his 30s with brown frizzy hair drove his automobile in front of her car, pulled down his pants, and exposed himself, according to reports given by the Asheville Police Department. Captain Will Anorino said he believes this unidentified man committed a similar offense about two weeks ago at the mall. They released a sketch of the suspect to the media. I'll share it on my social media pages. Pamela's abduction and murder were still being investigated a few months later on April 26, 1987, when a man was walking a piece of property for sale on top of Vance Gap Road, a location in between downtown Asheville and the mall area on Tunnel Road. There, he came across the remains of what appeared to be a young woman. The victim was identified as Beverly Sherman, the teenager who had disappeared after getting into a yellow Camaro in late January of 1987. She had been shot once in the right temple with a handgun. The fourth most downloaded episode is number 52, Not Reported Missing, featuring the current case of missing Madalena Kojikari and the closed cases of Zara Baker and Erica Parsons. Here's a clip from that episode. Finally, I'd like to discuss Erica Parsons from Salisbury, North Carolina. And unfortunately, her case is very similar to Zara Baker's, the only difference being that she seemed to have suffered many more years of abuse before going missing. Erica Parsons was born on February 24, 1998, in Mooresville, North Carolina, to Carolyn Parsons and Billy Dean Goodman. Carolyn had three other children at the time and decided she could not provide Erica with proper care, especially since Erica's father had a history of substance abuse and trouble with the law. Carolyn arranged for Sandy Parsons, the brother of her ex-husband Steve, along with his wife Casey, to adopt Erica in 2000. Erica was born with some disabilities, including hearing loss, and was suspected to have fetal alcohol syndrome. The Parsons received money from the government to assist with Erica's disabilities, along with her being an adopted child from the state. Erica only attended public school for a brief time, when she was small, before being pulled so Casey could register her as homeschooled. In 2013, 19-year-old Jamie Parsons, the adoptive older brother of Erica, went to police and requested a missing persons report be filed. He said he had last seen 13-year-old Erica in the fall of 2011, when she was standing in a corner of the house as punishment. She told him she didn't feel good and was having a hard time breathing. She was gone the next morning, and his parents had been up and out of the house early, which was unusual for them. When they returned, they told their kids Erica had gone to live with her biological grandmother, in Asheville. The third most downloaded episode is episode 62, Two Cold Cases from Western North Carolina. Like the previous episode I mentioned, these two unsolved murders are from the area where I lived as a teenager and college student. Amber Lundgren's murder occurred in 1997, and Nancy Morgan's murder took place in 1970. Here's a clip. 
The next case I want to talk about is frustrating because a journalist spent more than 20 years investigating it and even heard a confession from someone already incarcerated, but it remains officially unsolved. It's also another example of a female victim who was shamed for her lifestyle choices and behavior, when in reality, they should have had nothing to do with the reporting and investigation into her abduction and murder. This murder took place in Madison County, North Carolina, about 20 minutes outside of Asheville. It's nestled in the mountains on the banks of the French Broad River, and I actually lived there with my family in the mid-1990s for a brief time. I hear it has now become a mecca for artists and creatives, much like Asheville, Weaverville, and Black Mountain. People also like to visit the natural hot springs located there. It's a beautiful area, but very rural, and a lot of its residents have lived there for decades. In 1970, when a 24-year-old woman named Nancy Morgan arrived there, she would definitely have been considered an outsider. Nancy had grown up a military brat, living overseas in Germany with her family and other Air Force bases in the United States. Her father, Colonel Earl Morgan, worked in international law for the U.S. Air Force in Europe, and at the time of her death, was working in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, as the head of the law library at Louisiana State University. Nancy first attended college at Radford College in Virginia, eventually graduating from Southern Illinois University with a degree in social work. She was interested in social justice issues, considered herself a liberal, and admired leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. in his work with civil rights. She decided she wanted to attend nursing school, but first she wanted to take a bit of a break, a gap year, as it is called these days after a student graduates. She joined a government-sponsored program called VISTA, or Volunteers in Service to America, which was part of the Johnson administration's anti-poverty programs that included Job Corps and Head Start. Nancy signed up for a one-year commitment. She first trained for 10 days in Atlanta before moving to Madison County in September of 1969 to live in a centuries-old log cabin with another female roommate and member of VISTA. Nancy focused on community relations with youth as part of her work with VISTA, taking groups of teenagers swimming in nearby Mars Hill and educating them on health and nutrition. She also helped set up a clothing thrift store in the town and worked on charitable fundraisers. She was part of a small group of VISTA volunteers that had settled into the area, and they weren't always looked upon favorably by local residents. While Nancy made plenty of friends with local business owners and other residents, there was talk around town about the VISTA group being do-gooders who looked down upon the people they were helping. It was the typical us-versus-them attitude. Nancy tried not to let this bother her and focused on her friendships, connections, and service work. She had been accepted into nursing school in New York State and was a few months away from completing her assignment in the Shelton Laurel area of Madison County when she went missing in early June 1970. The second most downloaded episode for 2023 is episode 55, Missing in the Water. I took a look at missing persons cases involving bodies of water in the Carolinas. Here's a segment. There have also been recent developments in another missing persons case in my area, and it includes the discovery of a submerged car in Lake Norman. According to information found on the Charlie Project website, 43-year-old Tina Martin was last seen leaving her home in Newton, North Carolina, on February 12, 2008. 
she was driving her white Ford Thunderbird. Later that morning, she called her family and said she had lost her job. She never returned home. On February 6th of this year, a fisherman on Lake Norman was using a sonar device to detect fish when he noticed an object underwater that appeared to be a car. He notified the Catawba County Sheriff's Office. The Sheryls Ford Terrell Fire Rescue used a submersible robot to confirm a vehicle was underwater. And a diver confirmed the car matched the description of the car Martin was driving when she went missing. A few days later, a crew removed the vehicle from the water near a bridge over the Mountain Creek area of Lake Norman. The water was approximately 26 feet deep. The Charlie Project entry on 43-year-old Tina Martin noted that the guardrails currently in place in the area where her car was found were not in place at the time of her disappearance. Human remains were found inside the car, and the investigators said they are in contact with the North Carolina Office of the Chief Medical Examiner and will work to have a DNA analysis of the remains complete to help give Martin's family closure. For now, Tina Martin is still officially listed as a missing person. And now we've reached the most downloaded episode of 2023. It was episode 59, Coastal Mysteries and Murder in Myrtle Beach. I shared the stories of the murder of Heather Stigliano, the missing persons case of Heather Elvis, Gloria Kim Smith, who went missing from Long Beach in 1988, and a missing persons case from Carolina Beach that dates back to 1941. Here's a clip. And finally, I want to talk about a little girl named Gloria Kim Smith, who went missing in 1988 and has never been found. I had never heard of this case before, but saw it mentioned in a Wilmington Star News article titled, At Least 24 Missing Persons Cases Remain Open in Cape Fear Region. On June 25, 1988, eight-year-old Fayetteville resident Gloria Kim Smith was visiting Long Beach with her uncle Ki Chul Kim. They made the trip to meet up with other family members so they could go fishing. She was last seen playing on the beach at the King's Lynn area. Her 18-year-old female cousin was watching Gloria, but fell asleep on the beach. When she woke up around 30 minutes later, Gloria was nowhere to be found. Boats and a helicopter scanned the beach looking for the young girl that day. And the next day, more than 200 volunteers, firefighters, rescue workers, and police officers searched the area for Gloria, but turned up no leads. Police began to wonder if they weren't looking for a drowning victim, but rather one of a kidnapping. In July of 1988, the Charlotte Observer reported that a psychic from New Orleans had volunteered his services to assist in finding Gloria. Police took him to the site where she disappeared, and he said to them, I feel the child is still alive. He then asked to sit alone in the spot on the beach and meditate. This psychic had been recommended by a police sergeant from New Orleans, who told the local newspaper that he felt the psychic was authentic. However, based on the fact that Gloria was never located, the psychic, who said he believed his gifts were God-given and that he considered himself the next step down from a prophet, was unable to provide details as to her possible whereabouts. The last newspaper article in 1988 I could find about Gloria ran in the News and Observer on November 9th. The Associated Press ran a Wire article that interviewed Gloria's adoptive father, Lloyd Smith, who owned a diner in Fayetteville at the time. 
He said because Gloria couldn't swim, the family believed at first she had drowned. But after watching the shoreline get dragged for three or four days, with no sign of his daughter, or any of her clothing, he had second thoughts. The police detective assigned to the case at the time agreed. My personal opinion is, yes, she's alive, Detective Dan Holland told the press. I haven't found a body, and until I do find one, she'll be alive. The child could have drowned, but something should have turned up. However, a man named John Good, who worked on the case for the North Carolina Center for Missing Children, disagreed. He said, She was last seen in water about shoulder-deep in a fairly unsupervised area. We also determined that the current was such and the area was such that it would be very likely or possible that the body would not surface. There is a very good chance that she would have been carried out to sea. Overall, we've received 161,000 downloads since launching the podcast in May 2020. The podcast has had 71,200 downloads in the past 12 months. As I mentioned earlier, I began releasing weekly episodes on September 8th of this year. I've had an editorial intern helping me along with the occasional help of a freelance writer. Other than that, I still do the majority of the research and writing of the podcast, and my husband helps out on the production side with editing. Here are some other stats about the show. The most downloaded episode of all time remains the very first one, Three Mysteries in the Carolinas. This is the episode I produced during the pandemic when I finally decided to try my hand at podcasting, and I discussed my interest in the Kyle Fleischman, Zeb Quinn, and Liz and John Calvert cases from the Carolinas in that mini-episode that ran under 20 minutes. This year, I also took a look at my Spotify wrapped stats, and that was fun. I learned that 65% of my listeners on the app found the podcast this year. Missing in the Carolinas has been streamed in 58 countries, with the top one being the United States. People who like true crime, society and culture, and history podcasts also listen to this one. We are a top 10 podcast for 3,266 fans. The most shared episode of this year on Spotify was episode 70, the oldest unsolved murder in Mooresville, North Carolina, and other spooky tales. Here's a clip. Yes, um, this is a 1937 January. Uh, Lou Cree was a recent graduate, um, just you know, 20 years old. Uh, she had just gotten married to Herman uh, Westmoreland, who worked here in the uh, mill section. And uh, on a January night, a dark and stormy night, quite literally, very cold, uh, she goes missing. And the next morning, um, certain things happen. Uh, and uh, the big question is, is what happened? The, the case is strange. It's sort of like, I guess you might say, Ardell County's versions of the biggest uh, clue case there is, in my view. So where was her body discovered again? Okay, what happened was, well, let me give sort of the time frame here her husband herman worked in town and they actually lived outside of town towards shinville which is just outside of morsel and we're still so this is where the township area and uh what happened was is she married herman just months before like i said and she was uh, actually living with herman's father and younger brother who was 17 uh they had uh also uh, um two siblings that were young girls believe seven and nine and she was brought in ostensibly helped take care of the girls uh the mother had died just a few years before i, I think it was cancer i'd have to double check 
Uh, and Herman would come here and work during the week and would go home on the weekends uh, usually or during the week, but he'd stay here in town. They had sort of like a room that they could stay in. And the night that he was, uh, uh, that this happened, it was a very bad rainy night, stormy, and he stayed. And of course, back then you had T models and A models that couldn't, a lot of the roads around here were not paved. A lot of people you know, forget that we had the luxury of paved roads. And there were very few paved roads at the time. And the next morning, uh, the father and uh, the two daughters, and this is a strange part. The timeline on this is what those of us that looked at this case uh, are looking at. The father and the two daughters ended up at Luke Cree's mother and father's house rather early, like seven. And they're like, we can't find her. Her bed has not been slipping. You know, we're worried about her. Uh, and what happens is there's a search. Um, and uh, a uh, good friend of mine, Jeff Wright, who teaches with me, his great uh, great grandfather, John Robert Lee McNeely, suggested looking in the well. And most properties here had wells. And at, strangely enough, years before, not that many years before, a murder happened. And um, there's no mystery. We know what happened with this murder, but the murder threw the body of this guy down a well. And he said, you know, uh, have you checked the well, which is 50 feet from the, the house on the property? And sure enough, they had one of the workers there on the farm, this is a farm area, said that the animals weren't drinking the water. You know, so they lower, a, a, I can't imagine the horror this will be. They lower this uh, little boy down, down the well holding onto a rope and he screams and they see the one foot sticking up and and uh, of course, they bring him up. They go down and bring the body up. So she was discovered in the well, probably about three or four hours after that she was reported that morning missing. I've been very fortunate to have other true crime writers and researchers reach out to me with tips for future episodes. I'm hoping to do a separate limited series podcast about a cold case from North Carolina next year. So stay tuned for that. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. I hope you've enjoyed hearing some of the behind-the-scenes stories about how these episodes are developed and which shows have received the most attention so far. I am eternally grateful for all of your listens. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests and classes they have to support writers at www.wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.